Hi, it's G3, and on Saturday, May 7th, the 148th Kentucky Derby will take place at Churchill Downs. In another tradition not quite as old, Weiss's Jordy Visser has published his annual paper ahead of the race that dissects the Derby in his highly analytical and data-intensive way. I'll talk to Jordy about his paper and get his take on how this year's race is shaping up. So if you already like the Derby, you're in for a treat. And if not, I'd urge you to stick around anyway, because the thing about the Kentucky Derby is that it's more than about the Kentucky Derby. Just please make sure to check important disclosures at the end of the episode. And welcome. All right, we are recording, and this is the episode we have been waiting for. Now, Jordy, as you well know, we have talked about the Kentucky Derby in the context of markets and in handicapping. But on the back of your publishing your paper on the Derby, your annual tradition, we are going to have a discussion strictly about the Kentucky Derby today. And let me just say up front, for folks listening in, you can find the entire paper at jvisser underscore Weiss, which is your new Twitter handle. Is that correct, Jordy? Yes, my Twitter handle is jvisser underscore Weiss. So you are on Twitter, not just for the Derby, I take it. Well, actually, I've got market data, which I would say is similar to the Derby data that I go. In fact, each day for the last whatever week, I've been putting in a couple analytics for the market that people would probably not realize. And also a Derby or two uh, tweets a day with just kind of analytics on my own handicapping. Excellent. Well, I highly recommend that everyone follow you. And before we go into questions about your Derby analysis, can you just, for folks who have not been to the Derby, explain why this should be on their bucket list before they depart planet Earth. <laughs> okay. All right. The first time I went to the Kentucky Derby was around the year 2000. Fusiachi Pegasus won the race. At the time, I had one child, and my wife, daughter, and I went to the race, and I had a good time. Uh, and I say good time, it was an experience. It was the largest sporting event I had and still have been to, meaning there was that many people. I went, I got a chance to go through the infield and, and throughout various places, but I didn't really dress up. And I realized on that first experience that it's an amazing event. People are, are dressed literally like it's either a prom, a reunion. It's got a lot, a lot of Mardi Gras feel to it. It starts very early in the morning. It continues. So the moods change as time goes on. There's more to be seen there than you can imagine. So whatever you've been to in your life between, especially like a Mardi Gras, but anything you've been to that is kind of an all day affair, you add in some gambling, you add in what is generally a good weather day and you get an experience, which is really hard to imagine. As time went on, I started going in a variety of different ways and eventually started going with friends. I think one year I went with, it was myself and, and seven other people. 
And that became more of a party that lasted for a long time. I have a lot of memories. One of the people who I went to the Derby with many years was just in here and we were just laughing at some people that we would see every year, drivers that we had, things like that. So I tell all Americans it is a bucket list thing because if you like sports, if you like music events, if you like anything, this is just something that you won't see. And the fact that it dates all the way back to the 1800s is very unique as well. Of all of your Derby stories, and I've heard a few, which one stands out as your favorite? Okay. My, definitely my favorite involves Larry David. Fortunately, I had been able to go to the event in a way where there were a lot of celebrities and my wife had, at the time, wanted a photo with Larry David. And she came back to the table and said, he's not being very nice. He won't take a photo with me. And I said, well, why don't I give you a line that Larry David wrote and try that on him? And she's like, he's got sunglasses on. He's just walking around like he's a big shot. And I said, oh, that's perfect. So I gave her the line. She went up to him. He was betting and she got behind him and she went, he had sunglasses on again inside. She goes, there's only two types of people that wear sunglasses inside blind people and assholes. And before she could get the assholes part out, he finished the line and he took a photo with her. So that, that was my favorite story in terms of uh, trying to convince someone. So. Well, that is really funny too, because what the hell is Larry David acting like a big shot at Churchill Downs? I mean, he's clearly a fish out of water there. He has no right to be acting like an asshole there. The funny thing is when you see him at the event, he looked exactly like he would in Curb Your Enthusiasm. Nothing was different. The clothes he was wearing, the way he was walking, there was no one around him. People were just kind of taking photos of him. But he had this kind of cranky look on his face, like everyone was annoying him. So he's one of my favorites, Pierce Archer, who works at the firm. Valerie Bertinelli came over to the table with a friend and we're talking and Pierce thinks that her friend is Valerie Bertinelli. So she turns to her friend and goes, hi, Valerie. And Valerie Bertinelli, the star, <laughs> looks at him and just shakes her head. And that's the end of that. So, so clearly, Pierce, not particularly good on pop culture. I yeah, guess. One Day at a Time was not his favorite <laughs> show. So. All righty. Well, let's move to the actual horses. You have talked about how handicapping the race has helped you handicapping the markets. And one of the particular aspects that you have discussed as it relates to the markets a fair bit is this idea of narratives and separating narratives from analytics and value. As you look at the Derby this year, let's talk about some of the narratives that have become the sort of common ones you hear and read about and some of the analytics you're using to put those narratives aside. Yeah, the narrative part, which I talk about in the podcast we do relative to the markets, you're trying to hear what people are saying and what they believe. It impacts the odds, which means it impacts the value in the race. There's usually a recency bias towards this. And I think the number one narrative right now is that you need to be close to the lead to win the race early on. And that's been a pattern that we've seen. Last year, Medina Spirit went wire to wire. That was not normal meaning the horse was leading at the quarter pole and was winning at the end, even though he got disqualified later. You haven't had horses coming from well behind, and they changed the ruling to get into the race back in 2013. And what they did was they made it now a point system. And the point system was really put in place to prevent it being on the old system, which was the earning system, which allowed for sprinters 
who in the earlier races, because what they do when they have two-year-olds, they start to meet less distances, just like if you were training for the marathon, you wouldn't start at 26 miles. You'd start at one mile and then go to two mile. And they do that with horses too. So there's a progression. So a lot of the sprinters would earn a lot of money in those races and that would allow them to get in a derby and then they wouldn't be able to handle the mile and a quarter. So it's like taking a hundred meter dash, runners that are winning that and saying, okay, now go run the marathon. It just they would tire out and they weren't built for that. So misplaced horses in essence. Exactly. That shouldn't have been in the race. So once they got rid of that, two things happened. One was there wasn't as much early speed and horses that would just buzz around the trap at very fast pace. And if the pace goes very fast, generally that's better for the closers because everyone in the front is now tired. The narrative is that, well, since there's no more of these bunny rabbits out there that are running very quickly and getting the pace faster, it's made it harder. There is some truth to that, but the fact of the matter is that everything normalizes over time. Mean reversion sets in the trainers and the jockeys and everyone tries to make sure their horse is either bred or set up in a different way. And so I think in the last seven, eight years, it's been a narrative that you have to be near the lead. And I think that's going to have an impact on this year's race. And you crunch a lot of numbers ahead of making your selection and analyzing things, right? Yeah, a lot is an understatement. Okay, let me ask you, if we jumped into the wife's time machine for a few days and landed a week before the Derby in 21-22, putting aside any sort of improvements and analytics and the technology to crunch numbers, if you just had another 100 years worth of data to work with, how much better would your handicapping be? Your handicapping is, to me, a process. So it's using the available data that you can get, whether it's building your own database, which I do, or as we talk about the handicapping in this year's race, I'll bring up some things that some are qualitative, some are quantitative. I'll just say this. At the end of the day, your handicapping is an edge relative to the other people. And the majority of the money being bet is by people who know the horses, go there every week, and they have an edge in the fact that they know it. So the odds are about where they should be. If you go down to, and he would, nothing against, I don't even know if this track is open, but Pompano <laughs> in Florida, the majority of the people betting, since this is paramutual and the odds are created by the people that are betting, are by older people and tourists. So people that are maybe not uh, the best handicappers. So if you're a really good handicapper and you go down there, you're just looking to bet on the races that you have an edge in. It's like card counting. You're waiting for the race that you think this horse should be three to one, but it's off at 11 to one that never or seldom would happen at the Meadowlands, but it would happen three or four times a night. My father would say at Pompano, the difference is there's not much money there, meaning the track handles small and it's based on how much money is bet. So if a professional gambler goes down there, they're going to impact the odds if they move it. So that's the main thing is it doesn't really matter what data it's what data you have relative to what the other betters have. And that's really the way this ends up having an edge or not. I see. And so in that vein, given the fact that a huge number of people bet on the Derby, it's very hard to do, by the way, if you live in New Jersey, but there is a way. You have a lot of green bettors who don't know much, maybe like the name of a given horse or maybe saw a race who are contributing to the pot. So for people who know what they're doing, people like you, this is just a golden opportunity to find mispricings. Yeah, I would say it 
this race, and this is the only race I handicap. This is it. So I don't look at the Preakness. I don't go to the Breeders. I don't care about any of it. If I go to the track, it's on a different day. I'm not going to spend the amount of time I, I spend on this to know these horses, to watch all the tapes on them, to look for the little nuances that I think are going to create value. And the Kentucky Derby in this year's write-up, I decided that rather than wait for everyone to go, who do you think is going to win? I put my own odds, which is the way everyone should do it. So the way I did it this year was I put my own odds and probabilities on every horse in the race of winning. And the two horses for this year that to me have the highest probability of winning are Zandon and Epicenter. So I have them both at five to one, but those are not the ones that I'd be betting on because I think their odds are either going to be even worse than that, meaning they'll be lower, <laughs> offer less, or they're going to be right around. It's not much value in there. And also because I think the shape of the race is going to be different. So I spend a lot of time really trying to get a sense as to where the value is going to be. And hopefully this year with the write-up, people can better understand that this is the way to handicap. One place I'll just let you know that betters do impact they bet a lot on anything that's above 50 to 1. So one of the patterns we've seen in the Derby is very seldom do you see horses go off higher than 50 to 1 anymore because everyone's dreaming that this payoff will they'll be able to go buy a car. And so all those $2 bets, they start with, okay, what's the long shot? Okay, which one of those do I like the name? Which one? So you tend to get a lot of money bet on those to drive them back down. And by driving those back down, that means other horses' odds are actually getting a little bit more attractive. So of all of the analytics that you've used to describe, and I, and you use this term, the shape of the race, I really like that. What were some of the favorites that you relied upon this year? And maybe what are some of those that you de-emphasized in this year's paper? Well, the two most important, I mean, the single most important one is what you'd expect. And sometimes people overthink this and they think all the horses are the same, but if I lined up an offensive lineman versus a running back and I said, okay, which one do you think will be able to run the hundred yards faster? I think everyone's going to go with the running back or the wide receiver over the offensive lineman. Horses are no different. And that just means the first thing you want is speed. There are numerous. And when I say numerous, I don't know how many I use about five or six different algorithms for speed ratings. I don't calculate them myself, but I use ones like, buyer speed rating, brisnet speed rating, thoroughgraph, ragazin sheets, all these different ones, time form. There's a variety of them. And I look at all of them. And what you're looking for is they're all different, but it's not just the time of the race. Every track is different. It might be muddy. It might be windy. There, there's a bunch of different things that slow it down. They take a bias on it. Sometimes the dirt is different than it was the day before. It's heavier. And so they try to normalize everything in using those speed ratings. So a horse wins at Santa Anita, you're comparing it to a horse in aqueduct on the wood memorial how do you compare two tracks that are on different sides of the country different days different temperatures well that's what these algorithms are supposed to be so speed is the number one number two is the endurance because this is a mile and a quarter race this is one of the few races that will ever be longer than a mile and an eighth for any of these horses and very seldom will you see that races of this length so you really need to spend the time. And that's where I spend most of my time. The speed ratings I let other people do. Over the years, I've tried to find my own database of analytics. And I have one in particular that basically says the horses are still full of energy at the end of the race because the next race they're going to race is longer than the prior race. So everyone just keeps going up. And some of these horses really can't run a mile and a quarter. Now, if you have a horse that is dramatically faster than all the other horses and just like any endurance race, if you get a big enough lead, you might be slowing down at the end, but if the other horses aren't 
fast enough to just get in, they won't catch up. And so it's speed and closing times. Or maybe another way, endurance or ability to maintain the pace. Yeah. I want to see horses that are still producing the rate of change in their energy is close to zero. And that's one of the measurements that I use, which to be honest with you is very similar to the markets, you know, to convert a little bit of this into the markets. Right now, the stock market is down, you know, 12 to 13% this year. It's one of the worst years. I think it's at this point, if this was the end of the year, it'd be the fifth worst year for the S&Ps in the last 50. So a lot's already discounted in this. And what I'm looking for is some things that change. And one of the things that I'm looking for is a rate of change in yields because the Fed's been scaring everyone. So I'm looking for yields to slow their ascent. And a horse, I want to make sure they're not slowing down at the end, that their rate of change is still about the same for the final furlong as it was for the prior three furlongs. So before we hit record, you and I were talking about the weather this Saturday in Louisville. And I'm wondering, given the fact that rain may possibly be in the forecast, how does that impact the analytics you use? And you obviously knew that when you wrote this paper that there may very well be rain in the forecast. Yeah, I have been to enough derbies, I think 15 at this point, that if you do go, I highly recommend, one, finding a place undercover Two, bringing a poncho if you can't find it, because when it rains there, it can come down like you've never seen it. And I I do remember a a year Smarty Jones won. It rained so hard that there was water coming through the tunnels and everything. So (laughs) you can see this. I've been at the Preakness where the same thing has happened. So for handicapping the race, it will have an impact. There's no other way to say it. Now, as of right now, for Saturday, it's not supposed to rain. It will rain a lot between Thursday night and Friday night into Saturday morning, the track should dry out. So I don't see it as a big thing, but it does change it. One of the places, there's a horse in this race, Tis the Bomb, who I don't like because the horse is, to me, clearly better, has proven to be better on turf. And the time it's raced on the dirt, it has not done as well, except for one time, I believe, where it rained or it was a sloppy track. And turf horses tend to do better on a sloppy track than they do a dirt track. So there are certain horses, and you do want to go look and see if they've ever raced on mud, because what ends up happening is there's a different kind of dirt that's kicked up, and you want to have some proof always with these horses that haven't raced much that they can handle these types of conditions. So you want to go through them, but it's not going to alter the way I look at this race because as of now, there doesn't seem to be anything going on. Okay, but this is an interesting point perhaps where you could easily see, depending on how the weather shapes up, the media making a big deal about the narrative of, oh, there may be rain. And then again, a lot of bettors who maybe don't have the experience come in and completely adjust their betting strategy because of that. Yes. And for handicappers, and I do remember this, I believe the year that Super Saver won, which I think was 2009 or 2010, I picked Super Saver. It was the biggest amount of winnings I've ever had on the Derby. And one of the reasons was because it was supposed to rain and Super Saver, I believe, had already proven that he could run well in the rain. And so that was one of those times that it was part of the handicapping. And I forget the odds that Super Saver went off at maybe eight to one, somewhere around there. But I think that helped the horse to where the odds should have been more like four or five to one because the favorites had never raced in the mud. And so I viewed it as a normalizing factor. So you got paid double almost for betting on that horse. Um, Where I thought the odds would have been if it had been raining. And that's the way I handicapped. 
I, I didn't think the horse was the best horse in the race necessarily, but I did think with the conditions that were going, the odds should have been made at the favorite. Paid for the trip that year. More than the trip. <laughs> All right. I don't know how much you bet, but more than the trip. Great. All right. Well, on the issue of Super Saver, where do you see value this year? And where do you think betters may be surprised on race day? Because, you know, the odds, of course, can shift. Here we are on Wednesday. The odds can shift a lot between now and when the race occurs. Let's start with something that I think everyone should do is they kind of think if they're going to take handicapping seriously. And for those people who like any kind of games like chess or poker or blackjack or backgammon or anything like that, the Kentucky Derby has so many analytics that it's a fun game. If you like mysteries, it's a fun thing to go out there and search and kind of go through it. You can build your own data. It's taken me years to create the database and I just use it once a year as I go through. So what I tend to do first when we get the horses that are in there is I tier all of them, which means I, I look at them and I put them at a level based on the historical criteria of what I said, speed and the closing times, as well as the progression and how they've looked. The interesting thing about this year is tier one to me is very wide, meaning I have five horses in tier one and then I have two horses, which I put in kind of tier two. And normally I just have tier one, tier two, and tier three. This year I'm putting tier four because there's a lot of horses in this race that I just don't think have shown the speed or have the talent to be in there. And the reason I'm having a third tier is because I think there's some horses that are not as good as the tier two that are there. So we have a very top heavy, I'd say seven horses that I really think have separated themselves from the bottom 10. And then there's three horses that I'm sticking in the bottom 10 as opposed to sticking them in the top seven. And normally it's about 10 to 10, which just means that I think you've got a lot of horses separating themselves. So it's a fairly deep field. The other thing is I don't have a high odds differential or probability between the first horse and the seventh horse. And normally to give you an idea, if you think uh, there's a 25% chance of a horse winning, which would mean you think the horse is going to go off at about three to one, and you look at the seventh horse, well, by definition, you've given 25% of the overall probability there. If you think the seventh horse is going to be 25 to 1, well, then you only have about a 4% chance. So you're going from 25% to 4. I think this year I have it going from about 16. And then in the seventh horse, from memory, I think I have it as about 8 or 9. So you're only dealing with a 7% probability differential as opposed to a 21% probability differential. We're going to talk about the horse, given where you think the odds are going to come out that you have selected. But before we do, I want to talk about another horse, Taiba, currently at 12 to 1, arguably the fastest horse in the race. What are the odds saying about Taiba, and why did Taiba not get your nod? All right, so Taiba. <laughs> is it Taba? It is Taba. Okay. I've been wondering that. That's fine. Now, I, trust me, I only know that because I've spent way too much time on this. <laughs> so Taba has already been the fastest horse. So what's amazing about this horse, first of all, it was purchased at a sale for $1.7 So for those of you looking to find a way to get the fastest horse this year, it was uh, $1.7 of an investment, I believe, as a yearling. It didn't race until this year, I believe, in February or March. Won that one at less than a mile. I believe it was seven furlongs. So 
normally or historically, horses have needed about six starts to be ready for the Derby. So there's a progression. They usually race three or four as a two-year-old, and then they do two or three as a three-year-old. And then you go, that's historically. That number has been declining over the years. Horses are just running less, and the training methods have changed. And so we've gotten down to where Justify hadn't raced as a two-year-old and broke the Apollo curse. Tape is trying to do something. Before you go on, yeah. please explain the Apollo curse. Right. A horse that had not raced as a two-year-old and won the Kentucky Derby. As a three-year-old. But yes. So they always run as a three-year-old, and normally they run... And, two, and so a two-year-old is basically running before December 31st of the year before the Derby. So that's racing as a two-year-old anytime during that. So it's not so, the actual birthday of the horse. So Bafford broke the curse with Justify. Yes, and this is a Bob Baffert horse as well. Yes. Just not being trained by him for this race because he's been not allowed to uh, have horses at the Kentucky Derby, but he's allowed to train them all the way up until the Kentucky Derby. So he personally can't, but his staff and everything can be involved. So Taba would uh, basically be the first horse to win the Kentucky Derby with only two starts since a horse, I believe in 1883, Leonatus, but it would only be the second horse in the history to win with only two starts. So this would be an accomplishment. It has the fastest speed ratings on almost every one of the speed rating algos, and it had a great first race in terms of the number. So you've got a very, very unique situation. Now, you mentioned 12 to 1, which is where the morning lines are. So you guys, when you see the program, the morning lines are created by basically a professional handicapper. Now, that is not what the handicapper thinks the odds should be. That is what the handicapper thinks the betters will think it's worth. I would be very, very surprised if Table went off at 12 to 1. I'm going to guess Table is going to go off at closer to 9 to 1, 8 to 1. Would not surprise me if Table went off at 4 to 1. I do not know how people are going to approach this. If Baffert's name was on it, I would guess it would probably be closer to 4 to 1, but the fact that it's going to have Tim Yachtin's name on it, which is not going to mean anything. I don't know. I would bet the horse at 12 to 1 for sure. I think it's going to go off at closer to 8 to 1. So one to keep an eye on, though, because as you said, it's a very fast horse. And so if for some reason the betters don't give it much of a chance, that's when you would swoop in. Yes. And just so everyone understands, there's a progression that normally happens. And at the levels that Table won the Santa Anita Derby at, that's usually good enough to win the Kentucky Derby. So the horse doesn't need to get much better. And on the closing time scenario, meets all the the closing time. So the horse was not slowing down. So again, if it's double digits, I highly recommend people throw some money on it because it has proven already to be the best horse in terms of speed and closing time. Let's now turn to the grand finale where you selected Mo Donegal, even though Mo Donegal will be on the rail. And I'm wondering how much were you influenced by Mo Donegal's performance at the Wood Memorial. The Wood Memorial, the speed ratings were fantastic. Now, one thing I will say is Brisnet gave it as high a number as Taba got in the Santa Anita. A lot of the other ones were not as, they were not the same. The actual time in the Wood Memorial was, I believe, the fastest of all the prep races. So it's a little confusing as to why the differential happened so much. One of the most important things to me, though, is the closing time situation for Mo Donegal. First of all, Zandon, who is listed as the favorite, 
at three to one in the morning line, Mo Donegal beat Zandon at a mile and eighth race to finish their two-year-old campaigns. Now, the Remsen Stakes, which occur just before the end of the year, that is the longest of the two-year-old races. So it's a mile and an eighth. And Mo Donegal beat Zandon that day and did it with closing times that already as a two-year-old were good enough to suggest that he could handle the distance in the Derby. And then in the Wood, did the exact same thing. So the Wood Memorial had an impact, but... There's more to that. I spent a lot of time on this horse. I'm not sure he's the most talented. The biggest weakness in the horse has been his ability to get out of the gate and coming from behind. So the horse is designated as a closer. And as I mentioned, the narrative in the market is that closers can't win. Now, what that should do is make the odds be higher. And I think that's what has happened. So I think Modonegal, the, the Wood Memorial was very important as all the final prep races are. But I wouldn't say he was the most impressive winner. Taba probably was. I think Zandon's race was equally as impressive. At the Bluegrass Stakes. At the Bluegrass. That was, that was an extraordinary race. Yes. And Epicenter was fantastic in the Louisiana Derby. You and I watched that one yep. together. And honestly, the speed numbers on that are great. So you have a lot of the horses coming into the race. I wasn't as impressed with the Florida Derby with White Abario, who I have much lower odds than where they're putting him out there. I just was not impressed. And I have to use the analytics to some degree. And the speed coming home and that was not there. So Mo Donegal has a lot of different parts that I think are important. And I'll just give you as more of a, uh, you know, aside from just the pure analytics, the numbers, I'll give you some things about him that are unique that I saw in the race, the races he ran. So he's had uh, five races. He's won three of them. The horse is definitely bred for distance. And the owners of the horse are always looking to buy derby horses, meaning horses they think are going to have the endurance to go the mile and a quarter. They've had other ones, Patty Prado, Patio Prado and Dullahan, which again did okay in the Derby and were bred for distance. This one definitely has shown breeding for distance. Now, the reason that's important, if the horse was undefeated right now, meaning five for five, he'd be the favorite. Well, the two races he lost, there's two things about it that I noticed. Number one, the first race he lost was six and a half furlongs. This horse is not made for one turn. And the reason I say that. As I watch the races, the horse is not slow. It just takes him a little bit of time to get moving. And in the gate, he doesn't have a good first step. So you hear this a lot in basketball. How good is their first step? Meaning, can they already get by the guard to get into the lane? Your first step becomes important. And it's a tough measurement. This horse does not have, based on everything he's seen, coming out of the gate, a good first step. But once the horse is going straight, it starts to move quickly and it needs a straightaway. It's a bigger horse. It's a closer. It's one of the reasons. So it doesn't do as well on turns. And that's what I've noticed. So in a six and a half furlong race, you only have one turn, but you don't have a lot of time to catch up. So it's bred for distance in the turn. Lost that one. Goes immediately into a mile and 16th, wins that. Goes into a mile and an eighth, wins that. Now, normally you don't want to take the horse back, but to start the three-year-old campaign, he went back to a mile and a 16th, but he went to Gulfstream Park. To show you the difference in tracks, Gulfstream Park has a much shorter stretch run. I believe Churchill Downs has about a 1,250-foot stretch run. Gulfstream Park has about a 950-foot stretch run. That's a football field difference, which means there's not as much straightaway. This horse, every single time I watch his races, he starts moving when he's going straight. He has a harder time on the turns. 
This is going to be a big advantage, in my opinion, for the Derby because the stretch run is longer, but also the one position (laughs) has historically (laughs) made people believe they can't win from the one. And there has been some truth to it, but we can talk about some of the changes that have gone on. But the most important thing to me in analyzing the horse and going through it, I think it's very easy to argue that the horse would be undefeated. Gulfstream Park, he was not going to win. It was a mile and a 16th for the race he was in. I think it was the Holy Bull. But the turns at Gulfstream become really important. And being able to make up ground at Gulfstream Park, which typically favors speed horses, was not going to happen. So he went into that. I think Todd Pletcher, the trainer, was just getting his work in. And then when he went to the Wood Memorial, he had the one hole. He won. And he won easily. But he Oh, he did have the one hole. Oh, he's had the one hole, I believe, in three of the races. So this is just the way the universe has fixed things. I I think in the Remsen, when he beat Zandon, I think he was the one too. And I know his first race he was. So the horse has been born to be in the one position. Can can you just elaborate a little bit though on why there is this narrative? I mean, yes, it's been since 1986, since a horse in the one hole one, but what is the logic behind why it is harder? This will sound ridiculous to people, but it's true. So The Kentucky Derby gate is behind, it's past the final turn. So they have a long straight stretch run. It's one of the reasons why I think Mo Donegal will be able to be no worse. I think he needs to be better than 12th going into the first turn. I don't think he needs to be anywhere near the lead, but I think one of the things about the one hole that people don't realize, he will be running the least amount of distance if he just stays on the rail. If you run on the outside, you're running more distance. It's pretty logical. Makes sense. So he has a ground-saving trip, but he wants to be no worse than 12th at the beginning. And if he's there, then I'm not worried about it. If he's 16th or 17th, that is a lot of road. But in the past, they had this two-gate system. So because there's no 20 horse races except for the Kentucky Derby, generally the limit I think is 14. So they had a gate that had 14 horses, but because there's 20, they had to have what was an auxiliary gate. So when you connected the two gates, it was so wide, they had to have it to where the horse in number one, if it ran straight, it would run right into the rail meaning the curvature of the rail, because it was starting behind the final term, it would run into it. So what did the horse have to do? Had to touch other horses. To get position, it had to move to the right to be able to get around the rail. It's an unbelievable thing. You can go look at it yourself. So that's what had to happen. Now, what happened two years ago is they got a gate made that was 20 horses as opposed to 14 plus an auxiliary gate. That made it a lot shorter. And now the horse is actually starting on the other side of the rail, so it doesn't need to move in. There's a lot more room. And so the one position, which started in 2020, it's a different race than it was before. So I think it was a disadvantage before 2020. And now I just don't see it might be an advantage, to be honest with you, at this point. So because Churchill Downs shelled out the cash for a bigger gate, what you're basically saying is that invalidates the data that occurred back when they had the old gate for 14 horses in the auxiliary. I would say that if you're using the analytics and the fact that Ferdinand hasn't won a race, there's new information that you have to incorporate. It's a whole Bayesian side. The people, there's a narrative that you can't bet the one position because it hasn't worked since 1986. So that will inflate the odds. And it's one of the reasons why, in my opinion, that Mo Donegal is up at 10 to 1. My guess is if he had gotten the 10 position, he would have been eight to one. So I think you probably added a couple of points in payoffs because of the fact that he got the one position. And I think for him, to be honest with you, for everyone listening, 
if my analysis is right, and if the horse comes out slightly slow, but then picks it up, the big advantage he has is the race to the quarter pole in Churchill Downs is long. It's a straightaway. So he doesn't have to turn. He has proven, in my opinion, to be slower on the turns. And then once he gets going, he is a head of steam. So he reminds me a lot of that on Animal Kingdom. Animal Kingdom is another horse that I, I picked and made a lot of money on. That one went off at higher odds than Super Saver. And I always remember watching that race where he came lumbering down the center of the track. Mo Donegal, to me, if he stays on the rail and is able to be between 10th and 12th and then can have this big move as he turns for home, I think he's going to be able to position. I think he's actually the, the one hole is the perfect position for him in my analysis. You heard it here first. And by the way, Jordy, I will just say that if you ever have a horse in the Kentucky Derby, I think you should name that horse Bayes Theorem. I think that'd be perfect for you. <laughs> if, if I ever purchase a horse, well, another thing my father taught me, don't purchase horse unless you want to lose money. Feeding them is a lot. So. <laughs> okay. Fair enough. Fantastic conversation. Wonderful analysis. Congratulations and look forward to uh, seeing the race. Thanks to you three. This podcast should not be reproduced, copied, distributed, or published in whole or in part. This podcast is presented for informational purposes only. The views expressed herein are subject to change without notice. The information in this podcast is based on data regarding current market conditions from sources believed to be reliable. Nothing in this podcast should be construed as investment, legal, tax, or other advice and should not be viewed as a recommendation to purchase or sell any security or adopt any investment strategy. You should consult your own advisors regarding business, legal, tax, or other matters concerning investments. Please review related show notes for this podcast and visit www.gweiss.com to review related disclosures and learn more about Weiss.